Let us now hear a word from Galatians. This is coming from chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For you reap whatever you sow. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. So then, whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, and especially for those of the family of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, so if, if you don't know me, my name's Kevin Murray. I'm the, the youth director. Uh, I'm not usually in the pulpit, but glad to be here today. Um, as one of the youth told me this morning in Sunday school, she did not need to come to rejoice because she's heard me talk enough to her. So maybe to you all, you will appreciate a fresh voice. Uh, so I hope that's the case. Um, now this morning, we're, we're talking about uh, a big easy concept, or at least it should be, and that's, and that's love. And tomorrow is, of course, uh, the day where we commemorate Martin Luther King Jr. And so I actually wanted to, to start out from a quote uh, from Martin Luther King uh, about love. And this comes from a, a 1957 interview that he participated in, and he was asked the following question. The question was, is love really the solution to the race problem? Are there not times when a man must stand up and fight fire with fire? I will grant that love, as Jesus lived it, is the ultimate ideal. But it seems to me preachers ought to be honest and tell folks they live by the the turn-the-other-cheek doctrine. The sharp boys out here in this cold world will strip them and boil them in oil. Why don't you, preachers, admit that love, in the highest sense of the word, is impractical in the world of today? And so Dr. King answered that question with this. I am convinced that love is the most durable power in the world. It's not an expression of impractical idealism, but of practical realism. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, love is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. To return hate for hate does nothing but intensify the existence of evil in the universe. Someone must have the sense enough and religion enough to cut off the chain of hate and evil, and this can only be done through love. And moreover, love is creative and redemptive. Love builds up and unites. Hate tears down and destroys. The aftermath of the fight fire with fire method, which you suggest, is bitterness and chaos. The aftermath of love is reconciliation and the creation of the beloved community. Physical force can repress, restrain, coerce, destroy, but it cannot create and organize anything permanent. Only love can do that. Yes, love, which means understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill, even for one's own enemies, 
is the solution to the race problem. Often love is crucified and buried in a grave, but in the long run it rises up and redeems even that which crucifies it. So you can hear clearly in, in Dr. King's response, he's being the good Baptist preacher that he is and talking about uh, Christology, which is the study of, of Christ, what Christ means to all of us today. Uh, and he's talking about love being crucified, buried in a grave, but in the long run, it rises up and redeemed even that which crucified it. So in Jesus, we do learn this choosing love and what that means. And for Jesus himself, choosing love meant getting killed for it and knowing that love is greater than our death and in the end resurrects from death into a redemption for all, even that which committed the act of killing. And of course, Dr. King was himself uh, killed about a little over 10 years after that that interview, uh, and those words kind of give a different, uh, or hear, you hear a different tone when you know what's ultimately his fate. But he, he did again and again preach about how love would bring us into a future, not only with, in terms of society, but following what God wants with our life. And so in our Galatians text today, we have to ask the question, okay, love, but then how big how big is love? What does that love look like? It, it's a common theme for Paul because Paul's always writing to a, a specific church or group of people, and so we have to always do a little bit of interpretation about how what Paul's saying to this particular congregation has to deal uh, or do with us today. Uh, so I'm going to read through it again. I'm actually going to read chapters, just the first chunk of chapter 6, if you want to follow along, if you've got a Bible. Um, and really notice what, what jumps out to you in the reading. We're gonna, I guess this is more like a little Bible study-ish thing, uh, but really see what phrases jumps out in Paul's message here. So Paul starts out, chapter 6, my friends, if anyone is detected in a transgression. You who have received the Spirit should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Take care that you yourself are not tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if those who are nothing think they are something, they deceive themselves. All must test their own work. Then that work, rather than their neighbor's work, will become a cause for pride. For all must carry their own loads. Those who are taught the word must share in all good things with their teacher. And again, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For you reap whatever you sow. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. 
So then, whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, and especially for those of the family of faith. So what stood out for you in that text? The movement of it is is pretty simple. It starts out, uh, forgive one another in a spirit of gentleness. Watch out that you don't fall into temptation. Bear one another's burdens, which fulfills the law of Christ. We actually don't know what the law law of Christ means. Paul only mentions it maybe twice, uh, so it's kind of a mystery what he's actually talking about. Um, Most people think it's just generally what it means to follow God. But if you think you are something special but have nothing to show for it in the way of Christ to back you up, then you're deceiving yourself. You scrutinize your own work and let your neighbors scrutinize their own work, and everyone has to pull their own weight. When you are taught something, you have to share in your successes with the one that taught you that thing. Don't kid yourself. God's justice is real. And if you choose selfishness, you get all of the rewards of selfishness, selfishness. But if you choose to sow what God wants you to sow, you will reap eternal life. And don't give up doing the right thing. If we keep doing the right thing, it will pay off in the end. Whenever you get a chance, work for the good of all, and especially those closest to us. So, uh, Jill Taylor is a brain scientist. By the way, I'm really, I'm really scatterbrained, so it's going to be a scattered sermon, but we'll tie it back together. Don't worry. So, Jill Taylor is a, uh, a brain scientist, and she suffered a, a massive stroke uh, in her brain's left hemisphere, and this was, I guess, in 96, and she, upon going through this stroke, within four hours, could not walk, talk, read, or recall anything in her life. She ultimately wrote a book about her long recovery from this massive stroke. It took about eight years, and from the the procedure that helped bring her back uh, to a kind of normal, as, as we might call it, she gained deep insight into just what it meant to be alone in your mind and the different hemispheres of your mind, trying to rebuild yourself essentially from nothing. The book is called uh, My Stroke of Insight, great title, Uh, and one of the chapters is, she says, it's titled, What I Needed the Most, and speaks on her recovery about what she needed most. And one of her paragraphs goes as follows. She said, for a successful recovery, it was important that we focus on my ability, not my disability. By celebrating my achievements every day, I stayed focused on how well I was doing. I made the choice that it didn't matter if I could walk or talk, or even know my name, 
If all I was doing was breathing, then we celebrated that I was alive, and we breathed deeper together. If I stumbled, then we could celebrate when I was upright. If I was drooling, we could celebrate swallowing. It was way too easy to focus on my disabilities because they were vast. I needed people to celebrate the triumphs I made every day because my successes, no matter how small, inspired me. So when we turn back to Paul with this talk of reaping and sowing and what does love look like and how big is love, we have to ask that question, what does it mean to reap and sow and carry your own load? Does Paul mean to say that you should test your own work and carry your own burden and maybe another one's burden if, they, if they're struggling, but on the most part you're just concerned for your own self? What is your duty of care for your neighbor? In that physical sense, if you see someone robbed, beaten, thrown into a pit on the side of the road, legally, are you obligated to help? What would Jesus say about that? Of course, you probably know the answer. And Paul is pushing the Galatians, who are living to the, the letter of the law as they see it, to start making some different logical conclusions. If your neighbor is not reaping the spiritual fruit that they should, whose fault is it? Paul is kind of pushing the Galatians to say, well, you know what? It might be yours. Did you love them? Did you reach out? Did you care for them? And how often do we find someone in a metaphorical or spiritual pit and say to ourselves in one form or another, well, you reap what you sow. And of course, Paul and Jesus both tell us, yes, you will reap what you sow. And if you don't start loving each other, you're going to find out exactly what you'll reap. And how easy is it for us to focus on something other than love? It's like Jill Taylor recovering from her stroke. How easy it would be on her to focus on the disabilities she encountered, because indeed they were vast. Now, what was more important to her, focusing on her abilities, no matter how small, finding joy in breathing, being able to swallow, cheering when you can stand upright. It's like us many times. We all manage to take small steps, either in our own spiritual life, in the daily lives we live. Could be talking about in the life of the church as a whole or this church. We're pushing toward the idea that the things that are those small steps, those small successes are things to be noticed and celebrated. To harp on our own disabilities and failings 
individually or collectively, that's too vast of an endeavor. And it would literally take all the time that we have. What we do have time for is love. We do have time to focus on those good things we share. And all the accomplishments and, of course, what the world tells us we should focus on, again, these things are vast. It's easy to focus on that. And Paul is describing in this reaping, sowing language that that God is saying to us, you know what, don't spend your time worrying about the value of those things. I'll sort it out in the end. In the meantime, your job is to focus on love, echoing Dr. King, that practical realism, that every single day decision to build someone else up or not, to create unity, to share in love and grace or not, making sure your neighbor here at church is reaping those, those fruits of the Spirit, sharing the joy and learning and teaching and sharing that joy with your teachers. That's my Christian ed plug. Love and the things in life that are actually worth something. It reminds me a little bit of that uh, Second Kings passage that, that Laurie read earlier. Uh, it's, a, it's a long kind of winding narrative. But in the end, we find that there's this king, this very opulent king, Naaman of Israel, and uh, he has that, that dreaded skin condition of, of leprosy, which uh, was fatal um, for most in that time. And he called on uh, Elisha to help, to help heal him. And Elisha's response was, uh, well, just, if you just go bathe in that muddy river over there, you should be fine. And King Naaman, expecting this to be a difficult task, and bringing in chariots and gifts, and expecting at least to offer great payments, expects something much more for his healing. It needs to be more complicated than that. And he names those rivers. He doesn't want to bathe in the Jordan because it's not a very impressive river, to be honest. There are better ones. And he gets his pride in himself, gets in his own way of his own healing. And how does he figure out finally how to get out of his own way? It's to let go of those things that to God in the end don't really matter much at all. And that ordinary Elisha showed him that God works great things in those small, ordinary details of our lives. And for Jill Taylor and her recovery, and she did indeed need the expensive and difficult procedure to combat her brain hemorrhage, but what she said in the end she needed the very most was someone to help her focus on the simple little things, the things that don't have any real pomp, the little actionable moments of love that present themselves to us every single day in small steps. So maybe now we can hear the words in Galatians when Paul says, so then, whenever we have an opportunity 
Let us work for the good of all, and especially for those in the family of faith. Amen.